Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hello, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. It is the 27th of May. My gosh, how did we get to May? In studio, you have myself, Edwin. Rob. And Jess. Yay, we got the whole team today. It's kind of kind of nice. How how have your weeks been going? Yeah, good. We um we we've been continuing our, our takeout Friday tradition, and we had um Ethiopian this week, which is really interesting. It's a it's a wonderful experience. I don't know if you've had Ethiopian before, where you have a giant piece of injera bread, and then all the toppings are on top. And you take a piece of the bread, and then you have some of the topping, and so it's very shared and collaborative, which is lovely. And then I was researching, being like, oh, so how would you um, make the bread? I realized it takes 96 hours to bake the, the injury bread. So it's a long, long process, um, but very, very fruitful because the whole experience mm. is very sort of like community focused and like sort of sharing a meal together because you're sharing one giant plate together. Yeah. Um, it's it's almost like a, like a soda bread from what I understand. Um, yeah, similar base, I suppose. Different outcome. <laughs> yes, yeah. And it's just two ingredients. It's a, a certain type of flour and then water. And that's it. So, hmm. yeah, I, I must say, uh, Rob, I do love. I have a very, I have a soft spot for Ethiopian food. So, I'm glad you could experience because now we can bond <laughs> over Ethiopian food. Absolutely. Bing. I've been really getting into like ramen and noodle dishes. So I've been exploring kind of different Asian noodle dishes and doing like a lot of different, we've done Vietnamese, we've done Chinese, we've done a few different like deep dives. So it's, I don't know, maybe this week has been a bit of a culinary, you know, culinary step out of your comfort zone potentially. (laughs) Actually for me also, because I did make an olive oil cake, which is quite random, um, Mm -hmm. but it's a Mediterranean style cake rather than using um butter I use olive oil instead to bind so and it's it's lighter with the olive oil from my understanding yeah it's like more of a tea cake than like a rich sort of um usual sort of especially like um english sort of european style cake it's more of like that mediterranean feel i I actually prefer it i think hey well that's always kind of exciting is there anything new this week that's kind of been i mean rob fun fact with the 96 96 hours for soda bread yeah yep um any fun facts jess or anything new this week i don't think i have any fun facts on the top of my head right now i just i'm just going to endorse going for big walks because i've been going on some very big walks with um friends and family this week so that's not a fun fact but i am it's really helped my mental health i think this week so well i've got an endorsement too actually uh i have i've been bringing a lot of like role-playing games and i've got another one for people this is a game which you can actually find a downloadable PDF online or buy uh, as a pack. It's called A Quiet Year. And it's a bit of a mix between a map-making game and role-playing game. What you do is you take on a community, which is basically in between having just had like this massive civilization collapse and it has this one quiet year in which to reestablish itself. And so you as the players play collectively as the community members to build your community. 
um, around a table. But of course it's got, you, you basically go through a card pack and it's got all these different prompts and problems and ideas and solutions and you have to work creatively to fixing them. And it's basically whether you're by the end of the card pack, whether your community survives or to what extent mm-hmm. it's dealt with its scarcities and its abundances. And it's beautiful because um, throughout the process, you actually build a map with your other players so you can discover things and you can create things um we started off a game the other day and we had giant genetically enhanced bugs corpses you know dotting around our our civilization and it was all about you know finding the local streams and finding water source and all that sort of stuff so that's my my fun fact my game recommendation for the week (laughs) what was it called again it's called a quiet year is that do you have to do you, do you kind of create your own governance structures? Is that how it kind of works? Well, it's governance. It's all sorts of stuff. So what happens is basically, as I said, you go through like a standard fifty-two card pack, and different uh, houses. So you know, hearts, clubs, blah blah blah. Different houses have different prompts on it. So you might pull the two of hearts, and it might provide you with a prompt, and you have to interpret what it would be like. So what does the stru- what do the power structures look like in this community? Or even you know, a new stranger arrives. Who are they? Ooh, good, good, good. So, and so out of curiosity, what were they, the, um, the governance structures that you developed with your community? With the government structures with ours, um, we actually, so our one, the first game we played, it was very much the military because it had been a civilization collapse at the end of a war. It was the military soldiers who had taken over control. However, they got um, upset <laughs> halfway through the game. Um, we also had one where we had the um the locals were like the ones in power there were like five people who were like the farmers and they knew the land the best and to get in with them you had to like understand the land and understand the resources and they got subverted by a 10 year old girl who was extraordinarily charismatic and believed in expanding horizons <laughs> and we had like a division in the community of like um i think her name was elsmith loyalists like it was it was ridiculous but yeah there you go so you can really you can really get creative with it you could get some very spooky predictions of what might happen in the next however long <laughs> through the game. but It's extraordinarily true. And don't worry, that came to my mind many times throughout playing it. It's like, hmm, this might be some sort of weird CIA training <laughs> manual. <laughs> anyway, talking about today and today's show, what have we got coming up? Jess, I believe you've got a cool interview starting off. I do, yes. I actually ha- I interviewed Alice... Um, Hardinge, who actually was a tree sitter at Pat's Corner uh, in Warburton, Victoria, for the Against the Cliff, our logging um, with Vic Forrest. She's just given an update um, and also what's next, especially with um, incorporating social distancing into their forest fight um, for Pat's Corner. Great. Um, and I spoke with the National Trust of Australia, the Victorian division, with Eloise Dowd. Um, so they this year, well, actually they've been running it for several years, um, have run a Victorian Tree of the Year competition. So we'll be speaking about I mean, what it's about, but also about how the process of voting about shortlisting trees, how that changes our relationship with landscape and our understanding of history for something that's kind of long it's something that's been there longer than we have as humans or our individual lives and the kind of the gravitas that comes from that yeah that'll be interesting because it's kind of like how do you rate something which like has so much age and you know like like over you like what's the audacity with involved with that but then again also how does that change our relationship and interaction with wildlife so this should be interesting and also how what a tree could mean to one person means something very different to the next, the, the, the purpose behind it. Um, and so there's, there's many kind of layers of uh, 
heritage and value towards it. So yeah, it'd be quite interesting. Well, I'm actually also following on a nature theme. Uh, I actually talked to Mel from Youth Verdict, which is a coalition up in northern Queensland who are currently taking Clive Palmer and his Waratah coal mine or proposed Waratah coal mine to court. So this has recently become a thing because last year Queensland actually passed a Human Rights Act. Uh, which has allowed this youth coalition to actually claim human rights abuses on the basis of environmental and climate crisis catastrophes and impacts on health. So uh, now we'll jump into some alternative news and we'll be back after that. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and now it's time for some alternative news. So a glacier in Alaska is posing an imminent tsunami threat within the next 20 years in Northern America. So due to warming temperatures as a result of climate change, uh, the, the rising temperatures have accelerated the retreat of a glacier in the Prince William Sound region. And currently only a third of the slope is supported by ice, and so as a result, if there is, say, an earthquake, uh, prolonged heavy rain or, or a heat wave, the consequential melting of the surface snow may cause a landslide and therefore a tsunami. And so this glacier has been moving for decades. However, the current estimates indicate that a landslide could happen anywhere between a year's time to two decades. And so if to occur, the resultant tsunami would actually be likely several hundred feet high, resulting in obviously devastating impacts on the nearby towns, fisheries and tourism. Now, tsunamis in Alaska are rare, but they're not actually unheard of. And when they do happen, they're pretty damaging in their impact. So, for example, in 1958, there was an earthquake that actually caused a 500-metre high tsunami, which is the highest tsunami wave ever recorded. Um, staying in the US and also staying on the environmental theme, in light of the dam that failed in central Michigan last week, which was caused by heavy rainstorms and or an already saturated grounds, there are now further warnings that more of these events, events of a similar nature are likely to continue to occur into the future. So in the United States, it's been claimed that the nation's dams are not prepared for the expected changes resulting from climate change. And so the dam that failed in Michigan resulted in the evacuation of 40,000 people and also threatened toxic waste sites. However, this dam, like many others, was designed over a century ago prior to any real climate change considerations or sort of designing for those considerations in mind. And so some of the recent estimates indicate that out of the United States, 91,000 dams, about 15,000 of them are classified as having a high hazard potential. And so this raises lots of challenges and questions regarding management procedures for existing dams, which might need to change. So, for instance, operators may need to lower the water levels in anticipation of higher rainfall events throughout certain times of the year. And then it also means in terms of future dams, thinking about the impacts of climate change and perhaps sort of moments where you get an increased rainfall runoff. Because currently the way many dams are designed, even today, is not taking into account future climatic shifts, it's more or less based on existing average rainfall data over, say, 50 years. So there are some interesting discussions about uh, trying to make dam infrastructure more resilient, sort of moving into the rest of the century. Um, but yeah, that's my alternative news for this week. 
mine's not actually um, environmentally <laughs> related, but um, while in isolation, I watched the film Roma, um, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Um, I'm not sure whether you, Robert Edwin, have seen Roma, um, but I personally found the film incredibly raw, um, insightful, very moving, and actually um, very honest. Um, it follows the lives of Indigenous Mexican um, middle class and their families in 1970 Mexico. While digging deep into the natural lives, culture and hardships of family and work in Mexico, the movie actually makes special reference to Mixtec Indigenous peoples, which I knew next to nothing about. Um, Mixtec is a member of the Indigenous peoples of, and excuse my pronunciation, um, Guerrero, um, Oaxaca and Pueblo in Mexico. Um, just this past week, leading actress for the main character of in Roma, Cleo, um, the actress's name is Yulitsa Aparicio, wrote an essay um, giving some hard facts about discrimination in the film industry um, at the moment and <laughs> prolonging um, film um, discrimination. Although discrimination is not often spoken about in Mexico, um, it's an incredibly real problem, as we've seen in many countries with Indigenous peoples. Um, according to a poll conducted by Mexico's National Office of Statistics, 65% of Mexicans think that few to none of the rights of Indigenous communities are respected. Um, after being nominated for an Academy Award, racist comments began to circulate on social media towards Yelitsa. Um, they questioned why she was nominated, making reference to her social and ethnic background. Um, Sub said that as an Indigenous woman, she wasn't worthy um, of representing the country. Um, in the movie, Mixtec was actually spoken, which is incredibly rare in any sort of Mexican movie. Um, and Mixtec is actually only one of 68 Mexican dialects in Mexico. By showing the discrimination that disproportionately affects Indigenous people, Roma sparked a collective cultural awareness that has paved the way for an actual momentous legal victory in Mexico. Um, early, this was earlier in 2019, but um, a few months after the Oscars ceremony, um, where Roma did win three awards, Mexico's Congress unanimously approved a bill granting the two million domestic granting that two million domestic workers in the country um, have rights to social protections and a written employment contract, um, along with law mandated benefits um, such as paid vacations and Christmas bonuses. Um, this sort of made me think about the representation of Indigenous peoples worldwide, but also in Australia, and whether or not we are actually taking a step to improve and build on representation. I remember the last film um, that I watched that really did move me on a more international scale was Nightingale with um, Bekali Ganamba. I think you may both have seen that movie also, but um, it just really got me interested in thinking whether it did actually, whether this movie and in regards to Indigenous Australians, whether having representation and lack of discrimination in movies could actually pave the way towards government and official government sort of helping their cause as it did in Mexico. I just thought it was quite interesting seeing that it did actually work in Mexico with mixed tech Indigenous peoples and maybe seeing perhaps whether that could work <laughs> in Australia or at least help the cause. Mm. That's a really interesting thing. And I mean, that, that is the discussion also within media communication of what power media has to represent, to disenfranchise, to marginalize, like it goes, it flips both ways. So it's, it's a interesting, yeah, I, I suppose I'd like to look further into that and please 
Jess, feel free to bring your movie reviews to our alternative news. <laughs> yeah, I actually have been watching quite a few, especially international movies. So I'm thinking maybe my tram thought next week could potentially be about this. Oh, all right. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that. But um, first up, we've actually got your interview, Jess. So we'll play a song and be back on air in a minute. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book, 
It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Earlier this month of May, Vic Forrest refused to engage with the local community about plans to log in the Victorian Warburton area of Pat's Corner. Clearfell logging attempted to log in the area, but as a result, many Warburton locals and forest fighters locked onto logging machinery and took part in tree sits in the area. These tree sits have seen a number of arrests over the last few weeks. Pat's Corner is an incredibly important area of forest. It is home to bushfire-threatened species, including the yellow-bellied glider, the sooty owl, and many threatened plant species. The creek running through the forest is also a known platypus habitat and less than 500 metres away from the Leadbeater's possum habitat, as well as a cool temperate rainforest in the area. Unfortunately, after a courageous few weeks fighting for these beautiful native forests and species, logging did commence, with truckloads of trees leaving the area continuing since May 18th. But the forest fighters continue their fight. Today we speak to Alice Hardin, who is a part of Protect Warburton Rangers and the Forest Conservation Victoria team, as well as a tree sitter at Pat's Corner. Thanks for joining us, Alice. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Well, firstly, I think we'd all like to have a bit of an update on what's actually happening at Pat's Corner at the moment and where your team's going from here. Yeah, so at the moment, uh, logging has uh, begun uh, at Big Pat's Creek at the Pat's Corner Coop. So we've actually seen a number of logging trucks uh, leave the site and although community members continue to protest whilst using uh, social distancing methods outside of the gates, uh, yeah, they've actually filmed those trucks leaving. So harvesting is going full steam ahead at the moment. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of us did see those um, images, especially from you guys and your team, um, of those trucks coming out and of the trees being logged. Um, you were a tree setter there. Um, what was your experience with that? How did you? I did see a post on your social media um, account on Twitter about how there was a lot of slandering on um, your Twitter posts and feed. Did you experience um, a lot of negativity while you were tree sitting? Yeah. So it was great to get a lot of uh, publicity and to raise the awareness so to get those videos out to lots of people and also through our social media platforms but yeah since then uh, whilst I was in the tree seat and also in uh, the last few weeks uh, I've received lots of violent messages, death threats, Uh, my address was leaked to an anti-greens page, my private address, Uh, my housemate's van was vandalised in our driveway, I have had my uh, my childhood home. There's been uh, graffiti attacks as well, cars doing drive-bys. So it has been, yeah, quite quite an interesting time to, like, reflect on, uh, yeah, the positive impacts but also just the aggression from the industry and pro-industry advocates. Yeah, it is incredible and it's quite shocking to me and I think a lot of other people that <laughs> over something like this, protecting the environment, people can get so nasty and personal. Um, especially online and obviously physically. Um, That's very unfortunate to hear. Um, But I guess, 
Yeah. So have you taken any further action with that or are you sort of just, just, just sort of waiting for it to sort of mellow down? No, we are definitely collating all the evidence and that will be taken to the police and further action will be taken. Definitely. Well, hopefully we see a positive outcome come from that. Um, on another matter, Forest Conservation Victoria, you, you issued a media statement um, that Vic Forest did not attempt to engage with the community about their concerns for the logging in Pat's Corner. Do you believe this is or should be a legal breach? Um, surely organisations need to have clear communication and transparency with the community before going ahead with projects like this. Um, did you just want to comment on that? Like, what do you, do you think it should be a legal breach? Yeah, 100%. It is absolutely outrageous that public organisations, a state-owned logging company, Big Forest, is not engaging with stakeholders effectively and not allowing community to have their voice heard. So uh, although on Big Forest's website they state that Vic Forest will work extensively with key local stakeholders, uh, this has not occurred. So there's been several attempts to have community meetings uh, earlier in the year about other logging coops close to Warburton. Uh, they were cancelled and then rescheduled and it wasn't, uh, wasn't like spread to enough locals for anybody to actually, you know, have their voices heard and have that time to, to speak to speak to Vic Forest. And uh, further on community consultation, uh, there is a complete lack of communication and consultation with First Nation peoples. So Vic Forest actually has on their website and on all their emails, this little uh, end note saying that they acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, etc., etc., And they actually have refused to meet and consult with uh, First Nations people from the Wurundjeri, Gunakunai and Tanarong um, peoples. And there has been letters sent, there's been various attempts to begin this communication, uh, but it's all been ignored. So that on top of the lack of wider community consultation is just appalling and it needs to be addressed. Definitely. And I think um, I did note this myself when researching into this, um, this interview, um, how on their page, um, Vic Forests have broadcasted that they are taking that step to engage with the community. But um, as you've said, and I think this is a wider problem in society altogether, um, especially with the peoples of the traditional land, uh, the traditional peoples of the land. Um, it's quite clear and evident that um, with things like this, the government sort of shuts the community out. Um, on, have you actually, uh, you tried to reach out to Lily D'Ambrosio um, for months to express your concerns um, about the logging of these, um, these places in the area, um, as well as the fact that you had lack of um, community engagement, uh, the, there was lack of community engagement um, from Vic Forests. Has Lily D'Ambrosio um, responded to any of your call-outs to her? Can you give us a little no. bit into No, no, not at all. <laughs> no. And this is so frustrating. Uh, we have members of our community that have logged their mm. attempts to get in contact with the Environment Department and with the Environment Minister. We've been trying to get a meeting with her and we've been calling and ringing and emailing, writing letters uh, and it's not just a few people. We're talking hundreds of members of the community and it's all fallen on deaf ears. So there's just been so many attempts and it's just so, 
almost disheartening to know that we can't use our democratic voice and actually have a meeting and be heard by the people in power, even though we're trying our very best through all all the, the legal avenues. And that's, I guess, when we're, we're forced to go to non-violent direct action because it's the last avenue left. Like we've been trying for months and it's, it's, not being, it's not being listened to. Definitely. I think that's what people need to be mindful of also is that, you know, this is, a, you, you have tried um, to reach out to these officials and as a last resort, you have had to literally quite <laughs> physically lock yourself onto machinery and trees because nobody is listening. Um, has any member of government at all, um, any party, lesser party, actually helped you or advocated for you guys at all, even in, in local sort of areas of government? Hmm. So uh, I guess I should state here that uh, we're a non-political organisation, uh, <laughs> both you know, just little community groups, uh, people coming together, volunteers and such. Uh, we have had support from various members of the Greens, though, which is great. So. Yeah, uh, it's, for the green. it's good, to, good to have a few people on side. <laughs> yeah, definitely helps morale. Um, <laughs> on to one more thing. Um, it got to, it's got to do with a, a new scientific report um, coming out. It's backing up um, the long-standing evidence of the strong links between logging and future bushfire risk. Um, this past summer's bushfires have had devastating impacts on the community. Um, with people, homes, forests and wildlife all being affected. Uh, the area to be logged at Pat's Corner is just over a kilometre from residents and logging seriously jeopardises the safety of the community um, in every way by increasing bushfire risk. Um, Vic Forests has said that they are leaving two-thirds of the area um, while, quote, protecting habitat and features such as waterways. What do you think about this proposal and do you think... Um, it is okay at all to for them for their proposal or what is your stance on that will you be willing to you know negotiate or do you believe that 100% this um, research shows that we cannot be logging here due to this major bushfire event native forest logging in 2020 has no social license it's no longer tenable we are at risk of losing so many unique animal species as well as drastically increasing the risk to communities when it comes to fire events. So the Central Highlands, uh, as many people would know, was brutally uh, affected by the Black Saturday bushfires. And in the, the recent bushfire uh, season, it was you know, East Gippsland and Gippsland that was more affected. But now we're seeing these last bits of unburnt forests logged for paper and not only at risk of, you know, the precious flora and fauna, but also really at risk for the community. So if these fires come through, as, as you clear Fowler Coop, the forests become drier, they become more open and they become more prone to higher intensity, higher severity fires. And this not only has long-term impacts on the land, uh, but could have dire effect on human life. So we're, we're putting human lives at risk for cheap paper, for reflex, for international profit. And it's just not good enough. No, and it's um, an incredibly important thing that the community and you guys are getting behind. Um, as you continue to 
um, fight for the forest uh, with your social distancing put into place. Um, how can listeners at 3CR attempt to help you guys out um, and engage with the government to um, fight for this cause? So we are lucky enough in Australia to, to be able to use our democratic voice. And although we haven't had much luck getting a response yet, <laughs> it would be amazing for everybody to call the Environment Department, email the Environment Department, write letters to the Environment Department, of course, on recycled, sustainable paper. But, <laughs> yeah, like we, we, need to, we need to be contacting these people and uh, all of the information uh, to get in contact with Lily D'Ambrosio is just a quick Google search away and uh, you can always also check out our social media platforms uh, to get more information as well about um, what steps you can take. Great. Thanks so much for joining us, Alice. I will put all of, I'll make sure I put all of that, um, those details on our um, rundown on the website after we post this onto a podcast. Um, but once again, thank you for joining us, Alice. And thanks so much, Jess.
Welcome back to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Now, with many of us having spent the last two months indoors, it's become pretty easy to feel disconnected from our landscapes. However, the National Trust of Australia has been helping us think about how to reconnect with the wonders of our surrounding environments, wherever that may be. So the Victorian Division of the Trust has been shortlisting significant trees across the state, each with a different story behind them, and including them in a Victorian Tree of the Year competition. And so to tell us more, on the line we have Eloise Dowd, an environmental heritage advocate at the Trust. Eloise, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. So before we discuss the Victorian Tree of the Year competition, Personally, I wanted to ask, what do you find compelling or or comforting about trees and natural landscapes? I think I've always sought comfort in the natural world. Ever since I was small, I grew up um, along a river in a forest. And I think for myself, and I think this is a very common desire in people, uh, I seek comfort in something that's larger than my own individual experience and I think the natural world provides that for so many of us. And there's something about engaging with the natural world that allows us to comprehend just the vast passage of time, but the depth of life on earth beyond our own individual experience. And I think there there can be something transcendent about that, but there's also just a general calm that we can get from that kind of engagement with the world. Yeah, there is something really comforting about knowing that there's these environments with these trees or landscapes that have been here for you know, hundreds, potentially thousands of years, and you're kind of sitting in their presence, and there is something very comforting about that kind of experience. So uh, jumping into the, the competition, so what is the, the Victorian Tree of the Year competition? Where did it originate from? What was kind of the, the genesis for it? So the Victorian Tree of the Year competition started in 2015 and it was a way for the National Trust to showcase um, specimens that are on our significant tree register. So we've been registering significant trees across Australia for over 30 years now. So there's over 20,000 trees in 1,200 different locations in the register. And so we wanted to start a competition to ask the public to give us some nominations of what they think is a tree that really should be highlighted that we've registered previously. And so we called for uh, shortlist nominations earlier this year and whittled that down to nine finalists. And then people can vote online during April and May Um, on our Facebook page for The Winning Tree, who we just crowned last week. And so what was The Winning Tree? So The Winning Tree this year was uh, was actually a collection of trees. It was the Bacchus Marsh Avenue of Honour. And this is an avenue of 281 trees. And for those that aren't aware of what an avenue of honour is, it's a quite uniquely Australian um, war memorial. These trees were planted to represent soldiers that had volunteered services during World War One, um, and they were very common across Victoria and the Bacchus Marsh Avenue in particular is absolutely stunning. It's um, a row of Huntington and Dutch elm trees and it's actually got global significance. It's not just significant to the state of Victoria. Um, elm trees have been decimated in the Northern Hemisphere where they originate by Dutch elm disease and Victoria has some of the finest elm trees and finest avenues in the world now that they've been blighted by Dutch elm disease in the Northern Hemisphere. And so it's really a globally significant avenue and one that the community is very passionate about. 
Yeah, well, you touch on an interesting point is that a lot of the, the trees that are shortlisted or, or win, I imagine, have a kind of narrative or a story or a kind of purpose behind their, um, their planting or, you know, perhaps their, their survival. Um, so what have you kind of n- observed about the narratives of the trees that are typically shortlisted and may go on to win? We've noticed that um, many people have a personal history with the trees that they nominate, that sometimes they have a decades-long relationship with these trees, just trees that they walk past in their daily lives for years or they have fond memories of playing in them as children. Um, Our runner-up this year was the Himalayan oak and it's a beautiful tree in a cemetery in Bright and it was nominated because it's a really fine example of that particular species. But during the voting, we had so many people on Facebook remarking on the refuge they have sought underneath that tree when visiting the graves of loved ones and the solace that it has brought. And it just shows how many connections a single tree can have across generations of people. And so it's been really beautiful to hear those stories and hear these connections that people have with these trees. Um, we have also seen this year and last that the both winning trees have been trees that are under threat from road developments. Last year's winner was um, a magnificent river red gum in Berlin that is most likely going to be removed due to the Northeast Link project. And the community really rallied around and that tree had a phenomenal amount of votes. And the same happens this year with the Bacchus Marsh Avenue of Honour, which has been faced with many threats over the years due to truck bypass proposals and um, now a proposal for contaminated soil to be transported through that avenue. And you really see these community groups banding together because they want to highlight the importance of these trees and that they will fight for these trees. For people who participate in the competition by voting or shortlisting, how are you hoping that their relationship with trees and landscapes might shift during this process? I think the stories that come out from during the voting process can really shift or strengthen the relationship people have with these trees um, because it draws out a little bit more of the history of the trees. And so some people will just look at the picture and go, oh, I want to click like on and vote for that one because that's the prettiest tree. But then it gets people to start to think about why this tree is so important to them. And we had these people coming out of the woodwork who taught us things that we didn't know about these trees, that we didn't have about their classification. Um, We had the chestnut-leafed oak in Leongatha, which is in a historical garden. The great-grandchild of the man that planted that came onto the Facebook page and said, oh, this is, this is my great-grandfather's planting. And he planted it because it was a cast off from this nursery. And this nursery was here because of the gold rush. And you start to see the histories. And we hope that people will start to understand how many stories are connected to these trees and why it's so important to conserve and protect them. Yeah. How do you, how do you think that trees do help us understand the, the history of a place? Because many of these trees have, as you have said, have quite a powerful story behind them, either in terms of their survival or the reason they were planted. So how do trees help us understand a place and its history? Well, ecologically, the natural occurrence of different type of trees can tell us a lot about the land and, you know, its history of fire and drought or whether the soil is fertile or how people have moved through it through time. And in urban and suburban areas, trees can tell us a lot about people's values and different cultural historical trends and gardening trends. Uh, in Melbourne, if you walk through 
Melbourne, there's a number of formal gardens like Carlton Gardens or Fitzroy. And you can see the influence of these Victorian era plantings with these non-native plants like elms and oaks. But then also throughout the city and especially along the Yarra, you'll find scar trees that show the history of their use by the Kulin nations for canoes, shelters and various other reasons. And we can really tell that our histories through these trees. And I think also trees in high density areas that are really interesting are those that have been clearly built around rather than removed. Um, recently, there was a fight to save a river red gum at Flemington Station and for station upgrades and the community were just absolutely unwilling to budge on that. And they said, no, we, we want the station to be, work it out, do some engineering, <laughs> work out how to keep this tree here and keep this station. And I think that tells you a lot about the importance of these trees, not just for ecological reasons, but for the emotional lives of the people that experience them daily. Mm, absolutely. And I guess to you, is there, is there a tree that has a, a particular importance to you? There's many. Um, We have so many on the register. I would encourage people to go to Trust Trees, our website, and have a look around the area and see the different significant trees. But there is one in particular that I always come back to. It's a silver banksia, and it's in Murramong, which is a homestead and conservation reserve that the National Trust operates in Western Victoria. And it's this massive isolated remnant of what was once a widespread plant in that area but is now quite rare and especially in the western district there's only tiny pockets of native vegetation left and this tree I love this tree it's just such a large craggy thing it's high up on a stony ridge and it's been growing there for hundreds of years and it's it feels like it's watching it feels like this kind of arboreal sentinel you know holding the history of the land and watching over it and it's just there's just something really special about it. Eloise, thank you so much for sharing. And also that beautiful story. I think it's it's something that we don't always think about. It's while a tree might not have much significance to us, it, it generally will have significance to someone else. And that's a reason for, for preservation. Thanks a lot, Rob. Six years I've been in Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you yours. to all What's of you for giving us the opportunity to morning. speak on air. The bigger the reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 
Okay, and you're listening to 3CR. Now is Tram Thoughts, the bit in this show where we talk about something completely unrelated to anything, you know, news-worthy, I suppose, but something that's taken our interest. And sitting on my couch, pretending to be on a tram, because I was trying to do what Rob, trying to create the space like Rob was talking about a few weeks ago, um, I caught the jingle of like a TV advertisement, which I recognize to be the Seekers classic, um, I am, you are, we are Australian. You know the, the song? Mm-hmm. Um, it was a terrible rendition of it, pushing, peddling some commercial product. But it made me kind of switch onto this idea of anthems because I remember during primary school that uh, a lot of my peers really disliked standing for things like the Advance Australia Fair, our official na- national anthem and instead would substitute it with the Seekers song. So I wanted to kind of bring in today this discussion around anthems and kicking off the conversation, I wanted to get your opinion. Uh, I suppose, what do you think of when you think of the word anthem and how would you seek to define it? Uh, I think all I want to say about this question, um, I think the purpose of an anthem should be sort of to inspire both inspire and encourage people in ways that resonate with a culture and an identity, making them feel a part of a group which should lead into a community. Totally. Rob, any thoughts? To be honest, the first thing I hear when I hear the word anthem is terrible singing. Because <laughs> it's just like, it's like when you have to sing happy birthday, like it's a song that's, I don't know, I found often hard to sing for someone who can't sing. Um, so just painful is kind of my emotive reaction to the word anthem. That, that, it, that's mine too, because I think the problem is anthems have become so raveled into this one formal occasion, right? It's, it's very much a ritual. We all like, for example, in schools, you all stand up and you all sing the anthem and you all drone through it and everyone's off pitch and it's horrible. It's a calamity. Or like happy birthday, right? And it becomes a bit more of a coercive sort of like, you know, oh, you have to do it than you want to do. So I was looking into the root of the word and, of course, its proper definition is arousing or uplifting song identified with a particular group, body or cause. And that got me onto thinking about what types of anthems exist out there. So in its most classic form, it is a old English word and it basically refers to the composition of prose or verse. So that kind of got me thinking, there are different types of anthems. Obviously, we're all, we all think of immediately national anthems um, and that idea of, you know, that very colonial nation state needing to have a, a, a joined identity through a identifying song. But seeing as it's more of a chorus of representation, we can expand our definition to be something a little bit more. So I was thinking perhaps about, you know, we've got sporting anthems or you have for example celebratory happy birthday anthems but you also have like anthems of the people and this kind of got me thinking about artificially versus naturally becoming or organically growing into anthems and I wanted to get your opinion do you think do you interact with different types of anthems are there certain anthems which you like over others I don't really just because of the mainstream sort of media I think that anthems are portrayed on in like a patriarchal capitalist level I don't think I could say I have a favorite sort of anthem for me personally it's I sort of even with my friends um particular songs and um even going so far as to like film sort of things I feel like I would see those as my favorite forms of anthem 
on that note though, what you were saying before about um, colonialist anthems, um, I spent a bit of time in Oman um, during university and I distinctly remember um, Omanis actually singing songs just together as like sort of like little, um, as it wasn't such as, it wasn't like the traditional version of an anthem, but it made me think back then this is sort of like also the anthem doesn't need to be defined as like the colonialist way that we often see, um, especially pushed into marketing and um, national priorities. Mm. One thing I find quite interesting about the topic, which you kind of alluded to Jess and I wouldn't earlier is like, is a nation, is a, is an anthem, can, does it have to be created or can it be borrowed from something existing? Mm. Because people kind of say how, you know, this song is my anthem mm. um, and they're kind of borrowing that song as a representation of their life, um, which is like, it, I, I kind of find that quite interesting because then it's kind of, it's not forced upon you as this is the anthem to represent you is kind of, you choose what represents yourself or mm. a community choose what represents itself. Um, and I find that quite interesting in terms of where the direction of the anthem originates from. And that's also fascinating too, because if an anthem is this idea of a collective shared experience, it, it's quite funny that individuals will go, oh, this is my anthem. And it's that almost mm-hmm. that ownership back again. But then again, you do have that where people self-describe. Like I was, I was thinking about what anthems I potentially like. And mm-hmm. I actually realized a lot of the anthems I really connect with on an emotional or, you know, uh, I thought it was a thoughtful level, are actually anthems which are more so the sadder, on the sadder end of the spectrum. So I'm thinking of like uh, A Day in the Life by the Beatles or things like Common People by Pulp, which is a song which it explores kind of like suburban life and the drollness and the, the consequences of the modern world on kind of sapping energy from people. <laughs> and I'll play it after this, Tram Thoughts. But it was interesting because it's like, that and that that I found was much more of an anthem because it connects in with a similar experience I have, which is you know growing up in your cookie cutter suburbs and feeling that feeling that inability to move out of it and to be almost trapped and suffocated. And I was thinking about that with like um you know you've got like Nirvana's Teen Spirit. That's a that's a well known anthem. It's not a happy song. Or more recently, a lot of Australia uh, sorry American. Uh, youth actually bounded behind, for example, Pumped Up Kicks by Foster the People, which is a song that is inspired by their culture of school shootings and is a massive protest song and kind of organically gained cult-like status as this unspoken anthem with what was a very an extraordinarily dark song. So I was thinking it's interesting that the definition is so tied to this idea of a celebratory a celebratory kind of, you know, prose because a lot of the anthems that people seek out or connect with are ultimately quite a lot, a lot deeper, a lot more melancholy at times or complex. And I think this might be part of the reason also why anthems are so hated is because there's a lot of pretense of putting on a lot of celebration and there's not necessarily a lot of substance behind that. So I think in that way, I mean, obviously there's a level of superficiality. Yes, Rob, you've got something to say. (laughs) Well, maybe it's this kind of point of, um, I mean, I I can't speak to the history of all anthems. Some sort of speculating is anthems perhaps are generated through a period of, of, difficulty or grief and that's sort of like it's about a binding song to bring people together but as the understanding of that grief fades or that spirit at that time fades it has less relevance to the mm. current era so yeah, i guess yeah, it's kind of interesting this point of the the sort of stagnant nature particularly of national anthems yet mm. the sort of 
much more fluid nature of sort of uh, anthems of certain moments and eras, which have much more of a rousing effect because they are present. Absolutely. And it was, it got me thinking, sorry, Jess, did you have anything you wanted to jump in with? Oh no, yeah, I was, I just got so passionate about um, my opinion for that. I completely agree. I just believe that they become invalid once that group person or community um, actually cannot resonate with the anthem anymore. And then Mm. it's no longer an anthem if um, people cannot resonate with actually what's being portrayed. Well, this is what I, yeah, this is what I was thinking with both um, our national anthem, Advance Australia Fair and the Seekers, you know, I am, you are, we are Australian. Both of them feel, and I think Advance Australia Fair to a greater extent, um, like band-aids. And it, it kind of is what both Rob and Jess, you both have been talking about in the way that it feels like a bit of a patch job where it's like, well, if we celebrate all together with these few chorus lines, everything will be fixed. But because, and we've talked about this in previous Tram Thoughts, there's such um, an inherent contradiction at the heart of Australia in acknowledging and confronting and dealing with its themes and past, it really does feel so insubstantial. And I think this is why a lot of us disconnect from it. So, I mean, looking back into like the history and development of anthems, it's quite fascinating to see that this is not something that's just purely Australian. This is something that the world, a lot of different countries struggle with. And I think it's because within the genre, genre basics of it, there's a few like main staples. One of them first is it usually talks about past glories and it uses that as a kind of cornerstone to its song. So it's like, look at us because of what we were which we've obviously heard in modern day rhetoric very recently and, you know, weaponized. It's also usually very self-congratulatory. So it likes to focus on praising its people, uplifting its people through not necessarily even shared values, but more so the perceived shared, you know, winnings, I suppose. And it also, this is, this interested me, really likes to celebrate the physical entity of its territory. So we hear this in Australian tunes, but we also hear this in other countries' anthems. It does talk about like um, the homeland or it talks about the rolling hills and these sorts of very geographical things. Um, so that was an interesting kind of look at what, what defines, you know, the anthem genre, I suppose. But as we've said, it, there's a lot more punk kind of anthems out there, which are a lot more fluid. Um, and their attentions are, ext- uh, they're everywhere. I mean, if we look at the US and North Korea, they're extreme, you know, they're critiqued for being extreme propaganda versions of anthems, but even anthems used in things like football. I mean, in football in the UK, anthems are extraordinarily contentious because you've got Wales, Scotland and Ireland all with their own national identity, national anthem. And it's kind of blanketed out by Britain. And this is where I suppose I wanted to just kind of peel it back to the different anthems we hear and, what anthems work for us, what anthems don't. I was wondering if you guys had any anthems you knew of overseas, which you thought, yes, you're on the right track, or there are anthems which you're like, ooh, that, that makes me really uncomfortable, or I don't connect with that. I know no anthems, sorry. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think the only thing I can maybe, I just feel like they're, not that I know of any, but I feel like especially with colonialists and perhaps um, mm with America, um, where they are it's very, very patriotic to their country. I think as an example in, like, America's anthem, um, they sing it. I think it's, I think it just amazes me. When, when I was in America and I, I went, I wanted to see a sporting event and I wanted to see how patriotic they were with these anthems. It's their history, um, obviously, it has not been. It's with um, Native Americans. Um, quite like ours, there was no 
lack of respect, a complete wipe of identity. Um, and it's just crazy to see that what, from what I saw, um, there was, there was so, it was like an obligation um, to actually sing that anthem where I believe what we've just been speaking about, how anthems can only hold for so long um, when a history is not shared by that particular generation that is in living their lives right now. Um, I just thought it was, I completely disagreed with the fact that they are continuing to go about that anthem when it is just, that's not the America that America is today. And same way as it is in Australia where this is not the Australia that we want today. And I think it sort of, I, yeah, I think what I'm trying to say is that I completely disagree with those sort of colonialist era, incredibly patriotic um, mm. anthems that when not, not everybody in that nation agrees with what's being said. Absolutely. And I mean, we're going to jump to Australia's Australia's anthem in just a moment, but it is this idea of, you know, the imagined nation and anthems really do see it play a device in kind of that patriot patriotism, that nationalism, that building of identity. And this is something I want to come to with Australia because Australia doesn't really have a cultural sense of identity at all. Um, so we're going to come back to that in just a moment. I'm going to play a community service announcement and we will follow on with part two of this discussion. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices. Wednesday at 8.30pm on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Okay, so getting into now part two of this conversation, Australia's anthem. Uh, and just as a prefix to this conversation, I want to just like acknowledge, and I think where a lot of my thinking of this came from is just the complete utter lack of satisfaction I have with our current anthem. It is, of course, racist. It denies first peoples. It espouses a whole bunch of values that I don't think modern Australia lives up to, like being fair and free. Um, so I, I suppose with that in mind, I kind of wanted to get get your opinion on what the Australian anthem means to you and whether you feel that it fits with Australia as it stands. No, it doesn't fit with Australia. <laughs> Just straight up no. <laughs> uh, uh, no, it doesn't. Um, it's got no true reference to 
Australia and what Australia is today or what it ever has been at all. Um, it's an anthem for colonialist winnings in that country um, that united those that that community who were in Australia, um, but as you said, denied the Indigenous Australians completely. Um, I don't think we can have an anthem that we call an Australian anthem um, until integral issues um, within our society um, with valuing and accepting, not even accepting should not be, that's not the right word, um, valuing um, and completely taking in everything a part of the Indigenous culture. I don't think we can have an anthem until that is properly done. Yeah, well, I sort of start to wonder whether, like, is an anthem the best thing to represent everyone? Mm. Um, like, I don't know. I mean, like, even just the simple thing, and I guess this could be easily fixed, is that the, the anthem is all in British English. And so there's obviously many more languages that are spoken here. And so an anthem would actually, I think, need to require different languages and perhaps written from different perspectives and written by different people mm. um, to kind of reflect the 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 multitude of experiences in one place because i mean like i I guess like a lot of anthems have arised from maybe a certain pivotal turning moment in each nation's history and i guess for australia um it's it's kind of it doesn't really have a sort of the same like in in comparison with european history which often had a binding moment Mm. perhaps or or many we, we don't have that in our history so perhaps the idea of an anthem in its current form is is not reflective of Australia, I guess. Yeah, well, that was a really... Oh. No, no, no. I was just going to say, um, add on that, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, what, yeah, what as... I don't think if we were going to have an anthem, it wouldn't be able to be done without all parties agreeing to it. And will that be able to be done um, in the near future? I don't think so but so perhaps maybe Rob you were on the right track there with thinking that perhaps it can't really be an anthem and that maybe it needs to be another form of community embrace mm. there's, there's also another point of like there will be many more migrant waves into the future and so they will bring their own languages and it's kind of as soon as you create one now does that then not make it future proof mm-hmm. so is it kind of like maybe that the idea of like a static anthem needs to be sort of re-questioned and maybe it's mm-hmm. an anthem where it, it alters over time and sort of different phrases and verses are added. I mean, just as one comparison, there was a proposal for the, the EU flag um, to be made up of stripes that are coloured to reflect the different nations which were part of the EU at that time because the EU's members change and morph over time and recognising it's not a static kind of entity. And I don't know, maybe there's a similar kind of application to, to anthems as well. Hmm. Yeah, this is kind of where I, I, I'm kind of stemming into too, because I think like our, our current anthem as it stands is too, it's, it's trite and it's simplistic and it's, it is a s- song written by an old white guy, which doesn't fit the multinational, as you said, the multinational identity that Australia is. I think also Australia's got the added difficulty of just being so big, so diverse that you've got so many experiences and voices to capture, which is where that interesting idea of like, you know, what you're changing face of your community, the things we need to acknowledge, like that becomes a very complex task. And I I do applaud the seekers for their attempt to try and cover every single, you know, different group that was up until, you know, uh, at that stage in Australia. But I, I suppose 
the thing is like we could look at modification or changing of our anthem i mean in canada recently they've actually changed terms to become like gender neutral so they've moved from male dominant anthems to actually more inclusive uh to different groups now I, I suppose with this anthem, to, to really get a true great anthem, we would need to see a total reevaluation of what we value and what we want to capture in our chorus. I suppose, would you, what, what would be your state of thing? Would you think, you know, do you choose a song that's really famous and really popular at that moment in Australia? And does that become your anthem? Does it, it doesn't need to be more localized. Do we need to put it to a referendum what what sort of like vices would you like to see around i suppose the current problems with our anthem i, I don't have an answer but i have a comment it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> um, i mean I, I i don't think i could come up with an answer no. <laughs> um, but i guess like this idea of like a referendum i would disagree with because a referendum goes towards a majority and that does not reflect necessarily Mm. a minority. And given that there are so many different minority groups uh, collectively within Australia, I feel like it it, it leads a dangerous path for how uh, an anthem will be developed, which I guess is a whole, it's a whole question of how is it developed? How is it maintained? Or do we even have an anthem? Is there another kind of form of national expression that we use, which Mm. isn't a song perhaps? I think I agree with you. I wouldn't like the idea of a referendum purely because it does ignore the minorities and marginalised in the wider scope of Australia. All I could really say, I I don't know the answer to this either, but um, it would need to be like we have spoken about it. This won't be a forever. We in 50 years, we may want to change that anthem again also because it's an ever growing sort of country and um, things are always changing in the community and the multiculturalism levels of that. Um, but it would need, it would need to incorporate on an inclusive level, everything from ethnicities, um, religions, or do we include religion or is a, it's, I just feel like anthems are becoming more and more irrelevant just because the way that they have first been created is not how we think now. Mm. And so perhaps it's not so much of a spoken sort of song anthem and perhaps more of a um, um, composure, a composed sort of set of anthems um, in reflection of Australia as it would be today Mm. as a brainstorm. Yeah, and I I reckon with the referendum, that gives the illusion of, you know, a binary, this choice or that choice kind of thing. And it's it's so much more expensive than that. I think also through this discussion, I've come to realize like anthems really are, unless you are living in a country which has got a dictatorship or enforced propaganda machine, you know, which you could argue is Australia um, with (laughs) the amount of propaganda and advanced Australia fair and that crazy... Um, controversy that happened a few years ago where Harper in Queensland, you know, refused to stand up the national anthem and she was kicked out of school for a few days. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I suppose what it comes down to me, for me, is people really do hold the power when it comes to anthems. People choose what anthems they subscribe to and what they believe in and what they want to promote. Um, and I think it's that recognition and that take back and the choosing of what songs you champion, what elements you champion that can really create powerful anthems. So I suppose that's kind of my wrap up of an inclusion of a thing. It's really interesting to hear that both you two would like to move away from anthems. I think I still quite like anthems, but I'd want to see them 
like I'd want to see Bob Dylan or Helmer Plum, those sorts of anthems. I'd want to see pieces of prose which hold universal truths or experiences which you can't capture in anything else. And I'd want to see them, I suppose, organically climb into being an anthem or becoming an anthem through the amount of people who connect with their lyrics. I'd also like a lot of funk. Like I'd like some more trumpets and brass and just like some more interesting things. Yeah. I'm I'm (laughs) sick of the Mozart-esque sort of, you know, (laughs) terrible. Anyway. Draining. (laughs) That concludes our tram thoughts for the week. Now I am going to go out on Common People, which is by Pulp. As I said, this is one of my favorite anthems. It really does capture uh, a weird mood of suburbia but you'll also notice throughout today's show we have also been playing um anthems throughout so i hope you enjoy some of them they are fun ones we haven't put advanced australia fair anywhere in the show so that's all for tram thoughts and we'll be back in a minute to follow up with uh, my interview Sculpture at St. Martin's College, that's where I got her eye. She told me that the damp was loaded. I said, My case on the room of Coca Cola, she said, Fine. And then in 30 seconds time, she said, I wanna live like common people. Do whatever common people do Wanna sleep with common people I wanna sleep with common people like you What else could I do? I said, oh, I'll see what I can do I took her to a supermarket I don't know why, but I had to start somewhere So it started there. I said, pretend you got no money. And she just laughed and said, Oh, you're so funny. I said, Yeah. I can't see anyone else smiling. Are you sure? You wanna live like common people? You wanna see whatever common people see? Wanna sleep with common people? You wanna sleep with common people like me but she didn't understand and she just smiled and held my hand I went to flash above the shop I cut your
So last week in Alternative News, I talked about a collective called Youth Verdict, getting stuck into legal proceedings up in northern Queensland. This week, we have co-founder of that coalition, Mel, to tell us more about what's going on. Good morning, Mel. Hi, how are you going? Great, thank you. I was wondering if you could start off by telling us a little bit more about Youth Verdict and this legal case. Yeah, uh, so Youth Verdict is a brand new youth-led organisation dedicated to using the law to fight for youth justice. Um, And as our kind of debut, we have placed an objection to Clive Palmer's Waratah Coal Project. And it's a landmark case for two reasons. It's the first climate change case objecting to a coal mine on human rights grounds. And it's also the first climate change case being led by young people. Fantastic. And the case does rest on this premise of the impact of climate change and its impact on human rights, uh, especially connected to the workings of specifically Clive Palmer. Could you expand on that contention for me, like about that case? Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of a couple of links to put together, but mm-hmm. we know that climate change is caused by the we know that climate change is caused by the mining and burning of fossil fuels, leading to an increase in severe weather events like bushfires, droughts, heat waves, um, but also increases in the incidence of disease. Um, And those things are going to continue to get worse over time, impacting on our ability to live a safe life. Um, So that's about the like, the right to life. But there's also a really important element where changes to the natural environment impact the ability for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to practice their culture on country because we're changing the way that natural ecosystems are working. Fantastic. And breaking down youth verdict as a coalition, who exactly are you comprised of? I know it's a lot of young people throughout Queensland. How did you come together? Uh, We were founded from a couple of us folks in southeast Queensland who have volunteered for a really long time in youth justice and housing justice and refugee justice areas. Um, And we're really passionate about the intersections of justice issues for young people. Um, Our generation in Australia is the first generation to be worse off than the one that came before them. And we're facing so many issues, not just climate change, but also we're being locked out of the housing market. We have a really severe mental health crisis and we're facing the casualization of our workforce, which is particularly showing how vulnerable we are during the current recession. Um, So, yeah, young people are facing a whole bunch of issues and we really just wanted to create a space where we could access our rights. Fantastic. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I suppose with with Queensland at the moment, there are a lot of different protests and a lot of different activist movements happening in Queensland. Uh, A massive emphasis is on Adani and that movement. What made you guys pick Clive Palmer as your focus and a legal case or a legal apparatus to kind of push your activism? Uh, We chose this coal mine in particular because it, is at a stage of development where we can object to it in the land court. So I would have chosen to object to any coal mine if it's at this point where we can. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, Adani is has progressed too far for legal apparatuses to be used. Um, and I think that for the first time this year, Queenslanders have their human rights recognised and this is a new tool that we can use to get serious action on climate. And... This is a first in Australia, but it's following in the footsteps of climate litigation abroad, which is quickly Mm -hmm. turning its attention to the human rights arguments. 
Absolutely. And I, I'm so glad you mentioned, you know, the fact that we've seen international, we've seen the start of international litigation against environmental, you know, concerns and that sort of backing. I suppose within this fight, it's a bit of a David Goliath fight. Um, the coal corporations, as we know in Australia, are monolithic. This is a massive, there's a massive streak of anti-corporatism in this case, you know, fighting against that idea of the mining industry controlling our lives and controlling our, our lands. I suppose, why do you think it's so important within this case to challenge that monopoly? Because it's, it's something that's become so fixed into our culture that it, it, it's, it's an assumption, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, I think Clive Palmer is the perfect example of monopolies and corporatization gone to the incredibly wrong end. He's abandoned workers in um, towns or nickel refinery and ultimately this this new mine is just an opportunity for him to make more money and he's a billionaire and he doesn't need that and asking young people to sacrifice their futures and asking aboriginal people to sacrifice their culture so he can make more of a profit is just it's disgusting absolutely and uh I would like to pick you up on the idea of abandoned workers because a lot of the rhetoric we heard, and this goes back to like last year with the national election, uh, Queensland very much got painted with one brush as the rest of the country as kind of this anti-change, you know, population who are really concerned about jobs. And the main narrative around it was climate change, you know, action on climate change will cost jobs. I was wondering, kind of following this legal case, what's the mood in Queensland for a case like this? Do you, are you up against a lot of opposition? Um, it's been hard to read it at the moment. We've had overwhelmingly positive support. Um, but I do think that the Queensland state is complex and it's um, the political sphere is extremely heated on climate action. Mm. But we know that the fossil fuel industry is dying and we know that the renewable industry renewable energy industry is booming. Um, so I think we just need to keep pushing that. Uh because ultimately that's what's going to save both jobs and the environment. Absolutely. And I mean, it, this also comes in the context of the um, Queensland government last year passing tighter restriction on protesters and putting out a few worrying statements around climate change. So it will be interesting to track how your progress goes throughout, you know, through the social mood. Um, uh, now, I've read that you're entering this case with the conservation group Bimblebox. I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that partnership within entering into these legal proceedings. Yeah, absolutely. So we're entering um, with both the Bimblebox Alliance and Youth Verdict are being represented by the Environmental Defenders Office and the Bimblebox Alliance um, are objecting on the grounds of their nature refuge and concern for immediate environmental impacts to the site. Um, so we're really excited to be able to represent such a broad spectrum of impacts that this mine will have from intergenerational equity and climate change down to the conservation of beautiful and pristine uh, ecological environments. And I've got to say also following this case and just I'm, I personally am filled with so much excitement to see, you know, young people getting together, organizing and using the apparatus to kind of fight for our rights. I suppose you guys really have DIY'd it. How did you, could I just get a like step-by-step step of how you've gone through this process to establish this case for maybe people down in Victoria or across the country, if they might be able to form similar collectives? Absolutely. So this case totally depends on Queensland's new Human Rights Act. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think any other state... Unfortunately, we haven't even, got there. <laughs> yeah, haven't quite got there, which is, to be honest, surprising that Queensland got there first. Hmm. Um, 
So I don't think that that human rights element can't really be replicated elsewhere. But um, yeah, it, I, I guess it's tricky depending on the state because you have different environmental legislation and then different human rights legislation. So I don't think it's replicable, but it's definitely like an opportunity to see something that's innovative and then like think of something innovative where you are. <laughs> No, I appreciate that answer. I'm sorry. That was a bit of a curveball because I, right. I agree with you. I, I'm amazed that Queensland did pass this, this, that piece of legislation that's enabling you to do this. Um, and I am very glad. At the same time, I also wanted to just ask, what's the timeline for this project? Like, do you have any expectations set out for what the initiative is going to be like? And do you yet have an idea of how potentially we can support you from other states? Yeah, so... Clive Palmer and Waratah Cole have been sitting on this project for about 10 years um, and it hasn't made any real progress. Uh, so it has had its federal approvals for a while and it's mm-hmm. got a draft environmental state approval. Um, and so he's kind of just pushed this through in the last couple of months. So until we have our court case, the um, the mine won't be able to progress without its environmental approval. Um, so that's like kind of a fair way off in the distance, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, but our next steps are we'll unveil, I suppose, our witnesses shortly to the case. And towards the end of this year or the start of next year, we'll actually be going to court. Um, And all of that journey will be really well documented on our social media at Youth Verdict or on our website at youthverdict.org. And yeah, if people are able to, it's obviously a super trying time, but uh, we're being represented by the Environmental Defenders Office and you're more than welcome to place donations with them to support the case. Fantastic. And I've also seen uh, on a lot of your social media sites, uh, calls to young people to send in their stories about how they've been affected by the climate crisis. Is that another, I, I suppose, mechanism of just building noise around this case? Absolutely. We'd love to hear stories from young people about how they've been impacted by climate, but also just young people and any justice issues they face. And particularly relevant with coronavirus at the moment and unfair work environments and Mm. casualised workforce. So any stories from young people under 30 about justice issues that they face would be great. Fantastic. And I I suppose just kind of wrapping up this interview, is there anything you'd want to add about Youth Verdict and maybe the direction you're heading in? I think it sounds like a fantastic organisation. I'm excited to see, you know, building on from this where it goes. Is there anything else you'd want people to know about it? No, I think I think we covered it all. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. That's what I that's what I like to hear. Well, thank you so much, Mel, for joining us today and giving us that wrap up. And we'll be sure to check in with you as this case progresses. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on today. I really appreciate it. And that was Mel from Youth Verdict, which is a coalition of diverse young Queenslanders up in North Queensland fighting against Clive Palmer and the proposal of the Waratah coal mine on the bounds of human rights. A very exciting case and one that we're going to be following through uh, with Youth Verdict. Um, Earlier in the show, I spoke with Eloise Dowd uh, from the National Trust of Australia and the Victorian Division, uh, speaking about the Victorian Tree of the Year competition and sort of starting to think about the narratives of what landscape means to us and how this kind of process of reflecting on what a tree means to sort of different people and different cultures uh, the importance of that in sort of caring about place a lot more 
And first up on the show today, we spoke to Alice Hardin, who is a part of Protect Warburton Ranges and Forest Conservation Victoria. Um, she was a tree sitter at Pat's Corner in Warburton to stop the clear logging. Um, unfortunately, it has continued, but they're still fighting strong. Um, and we really touched on how we can actually get our government to listen to us and avoid having to chain ourselves to trees. So it was a very interesting show, very environmental show. Yeah, and we'll have all of the relevant facts and um, links in our rundown. Uh, I suppose I'd like to wrap up the show by just saying I'm extraordinarily grateful that we have had a nature-based show. It's lovely, as Rob has just like said, it's lovely to think deeper about the things surrounding us and especially during this time of crisis, appreciating the gift of the green, I suppose. Um, apart from that, next up is Stick Together. Have a lovely Wednesday, folks.